When a photographer decides to go out and start photographing birds, finding them and capturing them on their perches and on their nests can be quite rewarding. However, once you've mastered photographing birds as they're posing for portraits, you may want to take your bird photography to a new, more exclusive level. And that's birds in flight. Hi, this is Terry Vanderheiden, your host of the Nature Photography Podcast. And this week we have a special episode that covers photographing birds in flight. I'll warn you up front, if you haven't tried this type of photography just yet, bring your seat backs up and tray tables secured because you are in for a wild ride. There are many aspects to bird in flight photography, and I thought it was best to bring in an expert on the subject to tell you a little bit more about this type of photography so you can have more success at bird and flight photography. With us today is the YouTube famous content creator and author, Steve Perry from Backcountry Gallery. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for having me. So as a professional photographer, I will often seek out knowledge wherever I can and wherever I can find it. So a few years ago, I purchased a book from Steve called Secrets to the Nikon Autofocus System. That was a great book for me because while I knew how to use my autofocus of the Nikon, this thing really did a, a deep dive into the subject. And to me, it was really rewarding. So I appreciate that. And Steve, so let me ask you, how did you get yeah. started in wildlife photography? Let's see. Uh, that started a long time ago. Uh, I was probably between the ages of 10 and 11, or 10, 11, maybe 12 years old at the time. And what had happened is I was hanging out with a friend in the neighborhood and we had a few fields and woodlots nearby and we'd go out there because I was always into the outdoors. I love being outside. I love playing with little critters and bugs and everything else. And I was with him a lot and he would tell me all about these trips that he and his dad were taking, you know, when they went hunting and it sounded really cool. It's like, oh, wow, you get to go out and be outdoors and they were camping and he, you know, kind of regale me with all these, you know, tales of the outdoors. And I started talking to my parents about it and I said, you know, maybe, maybe I should start doing some hunting, you know, maybe we should, you know, dad, you want to go hunting with me? And I think my mom had visions of me, you know, bringing little dead animals in for her to cook every, you know, every few days. And she didn't really like that. <laughs> so she decided, uh, she talked to my dad, unbeknownst to me, and she says, is there anything that you can get him to do in the outdoors that doesn't involve, you know, uh, bringing little dead animals home for us to eat? And <laughs> my dad was like, well, you know what? He's fascinated with this camera. And my dad had won a Minolta X570. This is, again, film days here. You know, oh, deeply yeah. into the film days, you know, no, no one had even heard of the word digital at this point. And I was, you know, I was very fascinated. I was fascinated with that camera. And we decided that, or they decided that maybe it would be better if I was taking pictures of things rather than, you know, shooting them. And I, you know, now, of course, I definitely agree with that. You know, that worked out well. But uh, so I started off with this old Polaroid camera and it was really old. You know, when I say Polaroid, everyone pictures the, you know, the regular Polaroid where you press the button and it spits it out and, you know, you wait there and then your picture kind of appears before your eyes. This was one with the old bellows and you would pull out a piece of paper that then exposed the, you know, and then you'd yank another little tab that would bring out your, your, uh, a, a larger piece of paper with the actual photograph on it face down and you'd wait like a certain amount of time, depending on the temperature. Yep. Stick it on. Yeah. You'd peel it apart and you'd see if you yep. got it. It was all black and white. 
And uh, but I was definitely hooked at that point. So it wasn't long after that. I uh, talked them into using some birthday money, and I think they helped me out a little bit. And I got an old Pentax ME Super and uh, with a 50-millimeter lens. And uh, I went out, and I started doing wildlife photography with it. And I, I learned my first lesson in a hurry, as you can imagine, that a 50-millimeter lens uh, is not really the right choice for wildlife <laughs> photography. So I started learning early on. But after that, as time progressed, I would, you know, I got larger lenses and stuff. And you know, I got more and more involved with it on and off. And, uh, but I've been doing wildlife photography pretty much ever since. Wow. That is so awesome. Now you've written, and the listeners may or may not know this, you've written several books and, and you offer video instruction and covering all kinds of different aspects of wildlife photography. Now your newest book, which applies to this episode is secrets to stunning bird in flight photography. It's some mm -hmm. 520 pages of tips and tricks and step-by-step -step processes for getting better bird in flight photography. It's incredibly comprehensive. So, so what made you decide to write this book? Well, just, just a fun little story about the length of this book. Uh, you know, the thing is, I, 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 you can verify this with my wife. I talked to her and I said, you know, I really want to do a bird in flight book just because I love doing birds in flight. So that's, you know, one of the reasons I, I wrote it is I just have such a great time out there when I'm doing that. I mean, I, I like static portrait work too, of course, but I just love going out there and getting those action shots of these animals and especially birds. You know, they're obviously the you know most common one that you're going to get some action with. And I just have such a great time doing it. It's always a blast. And you always love getting those unique wing positions and those bank shots and all that. And I told my wife, I said, you know, I get a lot of questions about how to do bird and flight photography. I said, I think that would be a good book. I said, you know, probably, I don't think that would take more than a, you know, 150, 200 pages. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then as time goes on, I'm writing this thing and she's looking at it and she's like, what, how many pages is it up to? 300 I thought it was only going to be a couple hundred pages. I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I think it's getting there, though. Then 400 pages, then 500 pages. It started off, you know, the problem is, is you know, you, you think you're in a reasonable place, and then you start adding all these pictures. So the book is heavily illustrated, as you know. So that's kind of increases the page count. But, yeah, it's, it's very comprehensive. But I really wanted to create something so that, you know, when people are trying to go out and get their own bird and flight photos, that they have a, a good chance of, success. You know, the problem is you run into situations where you get these people and, and, and you know, they, they spend 10,000, 20,000, $30,000 on cameras. They go on these expensive trips and they try to get this stuff and they're absolutely disappointed and frustrated. And, you know, you don't want them to give up photography. It's like, you know, look for the, you know, the price of a, like I said to tell people for the price of a lunch date at McDonald's, you can get this book and it, it'll tell you what you need to know. And then some, of course, because it's so nuanced. It's like I can tell you the basics of, how, you know, how to you know shoot birds in flight in, you know, 15, 20 minutes. You know, we could talk about right. the different, you know, shutter speeds and f-stops and, you know, tracking techniques and, you know, give you a quick, you know, tip on which autofocus mode to use in that. And then all of a sudden you're out there doing it. But it's way more nuanced than that. When you really want to get into it, there's all these behavioral things that come into play. There's compositional things that come into play. And there's just so much to getting a great bird in flight shot that, you know, the book ended up being, like you say, you know, over 500 pages, but it was really, it was a lot of fun to write. And uh, I, I hope everyone enjoys, who's reading the book is enjoying reading it as much as I was, I had enjoyed writing it. Well, I can't imagine them not because there's, there's just so much information. What was really cool is that it's broken up into sections. So a person can go back and reread something that maybe wasn't clear to them or, they can reference it later, which I think is really awesome because you have so many pictures in there to reference, which is 
just super helpful. You know, you can see exactly what uh, what you're doing. Yeah, it's heavily illustrated. I say I wanted to do it like that because I think sometimes it's one thing to read it, but when you can see, oh, this is what he's talking about through a picture, it's like this is the type of photo he's, he means. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference. Right. So let's let's start from the beginning. So there's a, there's sure. many sections on gear. Uh, there's one big section oh, yeah. on gear, and it really goes into great detail. So let's mm-hmm. see, we're going to give you this. You've never probably never had this question asked before, but what's the <laughs> advantage of using a DSLR? versus using a mirrorless rig for bird and flight photography? You know, that's a good question. And it is, and and you joke about it, but yes, I do get that question on about a daily basis. But the, you know, the thing is, uh, what I always like to make clear before I answer that question is that it doesn't really matter too much which one you're using. Both of them are fully capable of getting great bird and flight photos. I like to talk about what I call the 84 rule, 80-4. 80% of a great image comes from four inches behind the viewfinder. And I firmly believe that. But 20% does come from gear and it does matter. So I definitely like to talk about that and say, you know, here's the differences. But like I say, people get really caught up like, you know, DSLRs are best or mirrorless are best. But it's like, you know, it's not a huge part of the equation to begin with. It's it's a, it, it's there, but it's not like the bulk of it, of what's making a great shot. So I don't want people to get too caught up in what I'm about to say as far as like, well, Steve Perry said this for DSLR, so that's why I'm shooting it. You know, just right. you know, kind of be careful with that when you're, when you're making your decisions. But anyhow, uh, for DSLRs, the advantages for me, and this is not a complete list. This is just kind of off the cuff here. Sure. Uh, I first, I like the optical viewfinder. The optical viewfinder is nice. There's absolutely no lag. Some mirrorless cameras, you are going to experience some lag. Some of them are virtually lag-free, like uh, I have an A1, a Sony A1, and you know you really don't see the lag in there. But you know, in a lot of them, you are going to see a little bit of viewfinder lag. You never have that in an optical viewfinder. It doesn't matter what price the camera was either. At any price point, you have an optical viewfinder, so there's never any lag there. You have a wider variety of native glass with DSLRs, too, at this time. Yeah, I think you know if we had this interview... Five years from now, that wouldn't be, you know, a point anymore. That would be, you know, kind of a, you know, something in the past. But right now there is a wider variety of native glass for DSLRs. And there's a wider variety of used native glass for DSLRs too. So that's something to consider. Faster startup time is another big one for me with DSLRs. Yeah, one of the things I find frustrating, as a matter of fact, I was uh, recently on the Chobe River in Botswana. And one of the things I found frustrating from time to time was when I had a, I, I, we were on the boat and I look and there's a bird coming towards me and my camera was like off, you know? So I pick up the camera, turn it on. And it, you know, the A1's fast. It boots up, you know, less, you know, about a second or so, but sometimes that's all it takes to miss the shot. So, you know, DSLR, you know, you turn it on and you can start shooting. It's instant. And with mirrorless, depending on the camera, you are going to have you know, between maybe a half second to a one second delay, some of them even up to two or three seconds before you can actually start shooting. And if something surprises you, it's very frustrating. For a lot of bird and flight situations, it's not critical because you know that the bird's going to go and you have the camera ready to go. But when something surprises you, the DSLRs are definitely still faster. The other thing that people don't realize with DSLRs versus mirrorless is the DSLRs autofocus systems aren't as prone to get stuck on a background. And... That's something that uh, I think it's some kind of a quirk with the on-sensor PDAF system that's used in the mirrorless cameras. But it's really it's really interesting because what will happen is if you have something close that's really out of focus, but the camera can kind of see the background behind it and that background is sharp, the camera absolutely does not want to let go of that background. Even if most of the autofocus is right on that subject, 
Like it's filling like, you know, you, you have a small bird or something and it's like really, you know, the autofocus point really is on it. But just because it's blurry enough that the camera can kind of see through some of that blur, it's still kind of latching onto that background. And that can sometimes be frustrating too with, uh, with mirrorless. And that's something that I don't see nearly as often or hardly at all, I guess, with DSLRs. You have a technique to solve that. I do. Issue. I do. Yeah. I do. Basically what I do when I have that happen is I just grab the manual focus ring on the lens and get the lens a little bit closer to the distance that my intended target is. And then I hit autofocus again and it, and it cleans it right up. It grabs it right away. And, and that's one thing I really want to emphasize because I say something like that and people, that's exactly the kind of thing where people, where, where people are going to misconstrue and say, Hey, Steve said that this is, you know, D, you know, DSLRs are better because they do this. And these mirrorless cameras are terrible because they do, you know, they don't, they, they won't focus the same way. And it's really in the field for a, a practical field standpoint. It's a very minor, minor thing. And honestly, I'm in the habit now of just keeping a hand on that manual focus ring. I used to do it most of the time with DSLRs anyway, so it's not a big deal. And I just, you know, if, if it's not doing it, I just make a quick little swipe and I'm, I'm there. So it's, it's not, uh, it's really not that big of a deal. Now, going over to mirrorless, mirrorless does have a lot of advantages too. Like, uh, I think the biggest one is autofocus and tracking all over the viewfinder, because with our DSLRs, we have an AF field that's, especially on a full frame, that's limited to really just the central area. And if the bird flies out of that central area, you know, you're just, you know, it's gone. You've lost the lock. With mirrorless, and especially with their real-time tracking, because DSLRs don't really have real-time tracking at the same level. I mean, Nikon has 3D AF is what they call it, but it's not anywhere close to what we see with the Sony and the Canons right now. And uh, their real-time tracking is absolutely phenomenal. I was... A great example of that, I was in the Smokies, I was shooting metal larks, and it was, you know, they, they're they're fast, really tough to keep in the viewfinder, and what had happened, we were going along Hyatt Road, it was great, we found these metal larks, I don't know what was going on in that direct area, but there was a couple of males that were very interested in being on the fence post, but very frightened of cars, which is kind of a weird place for them, I think there must have been a female in the area or something. So I got out, and I kind of stood just far enough away so they wouldn't fly, but they were within range at, 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 with a teleconverter on the 600. So I was like, this is okay. So I just wait for a car because it's kind of busy, you know. Car would come by, they'd fly off, and then they'd make a big horseshoe and come to the fence on the other side. Uh, uh, and they'd land on a post on the other side of me, on the same side of the road. So this gave me all sorts of flight opportunities, right? I was using the tracking mode, the real-time tracking in the Sony A1. And it was just phenomenal because these metal arcs, I mean, I... My skill set is not such that I can keep a metal arc completely centered in the frame the entire time. I'm, I'm happy to admit that. <laughs> you know, they're fast. They're really difficult. So, you know, they're kind of all over the frame, maybe even more than I'd want to admit. And, you know, the real-time tracking just kept up with them, you know. And it was absolutely, uh, you, you know, I absolutely got more keepers than I otherwise would have thanks to that feature. And it's just not something that's uh, available, period, on a DSLR. And to me, it's been a real game changer. Another going along with that is the IAF. Uh, you know, that's kind of an adjunct to the real-time tracking, kind of an enhancement of it. And, you know, there's times I've shot eagles and things like that flying, and you can watch the IAF just grab right onto the eagle's eye. And that's really valuable, too, because, you know, a lot of times, like, one of my favorite autofocus modes with Nikon is Group AF. But the problem with Group AF, and a lot of, and same like with Zone with Canon, or, you know, standard Zone maybe with Sony, without IAF, is that 
it tends to be a close focus priority type of thing. And if a wing happens to get into that AF field there, that little AF area, right. it's going to focus on the tip of the wing and you have a soft face. With the eye tracking, even if I'm using something like Zone AF on the Sony, it will get right on that eye and it'll stay on that eye. Whereas like Group AF wouldn't necessarily do that. So that's that, that's really handy. It doesn't work every time. People, I, I tell people, don't buy these cameras because of IAF. But it is a nice thing to have there. When it, does, when it is effective, it's really nice. So, yeah, that, that's really great. Uh, the other thing is uh, no blackout on a lot of these newer cameras. The A1, A9 does, uh, does not have any blackout. The R3 no is not going to have blackout. And the upcoming Z9 will not have viewfinder blackout either. And that is absolutely phenomenal, as you can imagine, for tracking birds in flight. No blackout makes it so much easier to keep that bird in the frame. And you know where it really comes in handy is slow shutter speed panning. Because with slower shutter speed, yeah, you're, you have a longer blackout, right? Because you're shooting at 15, right. 20th of a second. I never thought of that. Right. So you have these longer blackouts. And it's really handy when you're doing the slow shutter speed panning because that's when it's super critical that that bird stays in the exact same spot. Because if it doesn't, it's just a blurry mess. You really have to keep it in that same area. So that's really handy. I like that. And I think we're going to see that trickle down to all these models. I, I, I'm, I'll say it here on your podcast. Probably I'm saying within five years. Mid-range and pro mirrorless within five years will all have you know no viewfinder blackout. That it'll be a thing of the past. Other thing, fast frame rates, those are game changing yeah. as well. 20, 30 frames a second. There are so many times, and, and it's not so much, I tell people uh, faster frame rates are about more opportunities. They're not about you know spraying and praying, it's about more opportunities. You know, what a great example of this is you're shooting a bird, it's flying past you. And maybe there's a guy next to you shooting at eight frames a second. And you're shooting at, uh, we'll, we'll go all the way and we'll say 30 frames a second, right? And, you know, maybe he gets a nice shot with the wing up and another shot with the wing down. I have all those beats in between too. So that gives me a lot more variety to pick from when I'm looking at these images back at the computer. I'm like, well, what is the exact perfect wing position? Now, if he took eight shots in one second, he's going to have eight choices he can make, which is okay. That's not bad, right? But if I shot at 30 frames a second, I have 30 choices that I can make. I can go through 30 photos and I can be really nuanced. And it really, it improves the keepers that you're getting is a good way to describe it, I guess. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, I had this really great shot, uh, you, you know, at, at eight frames a second. But th this one over here is even better because the wing was just up a little bit more or, you know, sure. in just a little bit better position or his head was turned just a hair bit in that, in that you know, instant or the beak was open just a little bit more. It's all those little nuanced things that really can make a difference. And, you know, all these mirrorless cameras, Nikon, Canon, and Sony are all going to, you know, it sounds like the Z9 is going to be at 30 frames a second. The R3 is definitely at 30 frames a second. We know the A1 is as well. So, and again, I think this is stuff we're going to see trickle down to the uh, mid-range cameras too over time. Maybe not 30, but maybe, you know, 15, 20, which is, you know, still faster than what we're getting with our DSLRs. And finally, of course, is things like, you know, live exposure information. That's handy as well, especially for bird in flight. You can kind of spot a problem if the bird flies somewhere unexpected. And not that you can ever, you know, not that you can necessarily do something about it right that second if it only lasts for, you know, right. a second or half a second. But at least, you know, it, for the next shot, <laughs> that there, there could be a problem yeah. there. So, so, and like I say, I do want to emphasize again, though. For years, I shot bird and flight with DSLRs and and with SLRs too. You know, DSLRs are perfectly capable of bird and flight photography. I, I don't want anyone to misconstrue this and say, "Oh my gosh, I have to have a mirrorless camera." You don't. DSLRs are you know less expensive too. That's the other thing to consider when you're thinking about this kind of stuff. Is that you know to, to get the kind of capabilities I'm talking about with mirrorless cameras, all of them, all the ones I'm talking about, you're really spending a lot of money. 
with DSLRs, you can get a very capable camera. I think uh, D850s are what, about $1,700 used right now, $2,000 used for a nice one. And, you know, it's a completely, perfectly capable camera that I have, you know, probably a terabyte worth of bird and flight photos from. So, I, you know, I, I, I say don't get too caught up in equipment, but, you know, since we were talking about it, I, I went for it there. <laughs> That's, no, that, that makes total sense. So, uh, in speaking of equipment, one of the sections you have is on tripods, and I'm totally obsessed on tripods. I'm, I, I have a fair amount of them, probably more than most people. <laughs> Your book does a really good breakdown on them, you know, and so most photographers start out with that inexpensive tripod, and then they upgrade mm-hmm. to something better as time goes on. Then they maybe even do it again. So yeah. what are your thoughts on spending more for a good quality tripod near the beginning? I think that's absolutely the way to go. The, the, the problem is there's a misconception out there that a tripod shouldn't cost more than 100 bucks, especially among new photographers, because they see them for that kind of money over at Best Buy and things like that, you know. But the thing is, you know, a good tripod is going to set you back a little bit. Now, you know, maybe you don't have to spend $1,000 or $1,500 on a setup. But in my experience, the more you spend, the happier you are. You know, not only, like you say, the first thing is that a lot of times you end up doing it anyway. As you say, you end up, I, I see people all the time and they have, you know, a closet full of tripods. They buy a, a real cheap one to start with and a little better, a little better, a little better. They do this three or four times. And it's like, you know, for the same money, you probably could have bought the good set of legs and been done with it right out of the, right, right out of the gate. But the other big thing isn't just the financial cost of buying something over and over again, but it's also thinking about, you know, what's the quality, what's the field experience with this, right? And that's the thing is that the reason I think a lot of people don't like tripods is because they have never used a really good quality tripod and head. For probably 80% of my bird and flight work, I'm using a tripod, believe it or not. Everyone thinks it's, you know, I must be doing everything handheld. But for the most of my bird and flight work, I'm actually on a tripod. And I actually prefer it that way. It's just easier with a good gimbal head and a tri- set, yeah. nice set of legs. It, it, the tripod actually facilitates getting the shot. It works with you. But if you're using a cheaper tripod, it's just frustrating and you're out there and you hate tripods. And uh, right. so, so, like I say, I I think that a, a good quality tripod, I use a Really Right Stuff TVC34L, and I use a Wimberly WH200 gimbal head. That is not a cheap setup, but it is just absolutely phenomenal. It's just really nice to use, and I enjoy using it, and it, and it really helps me get the shot. So I, I, I definitely think that... Even if you're first starting out, look at us, you know, seriously look. If you're going to get serious about it, look at a good tripod because you're just going to end up spending the money over and over and you would have spent the same money to get a good tripod if you just would have started with that. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a theory on tri- on spending good money for a tripod. And this is this of all the equipment you buy. If you buy a tripod, let's say you're starting out and you say, look, I'm going to I'm going to sink fifteen hundred dollars into this tripod. That tripod's mm-hmm. going to last you for twenty five, thirty years, probably. Yeah, there's no piece of equipment in your bag, especially camera bodies that are going to last 25 or 30 years. That is an excellent point. That is very true. That is very true. Yeah, my tripod has seen a lot of different cameras come and go. You know, <laughs> you also have a uh, a detailed chapter on autofocus. I mean, really detailed on on autofocus. Yeah, and you go into great detail of how and when to use the different autofocus modes. Tell us a little bit about when it's best to use a single AF point focus and when the photographer might consider jumping to a larger auto focus area. You know, it, it really depends on 
the speed of the bird and how well you're able to track it. That's where that's really where, where it really comes in. You know, depending on your skill set, you might be able to keep a single AF point on a songbird as it flies by. I do not resemble that remark at all. <laughs> I cannot do that in any way, shape, or form. But there are people, I'm sure there's at least one of them out there that can keep a single AF point on a songbird as it flies by. So my advice is, it goes like this. Would it, use the smallest AF area you can successfully keep on the bird, right? So if when I'm shooting things like sandhill cranes, which are really slow, or egrets or herons even, pelicans, stuff like that, a lot of times I'll just be using single point. And that's it because I don't need any help from the autofocus system. The smaller the AF area is, the more control that you exercise over where focus is on that subject. So if I can keep a small single point right on the head and neck area, or at least on the same focal plane as the head and neck, like maybe on the body or something, if I can do that with a single point, I don't have to worry about things like group AF accidentally grabbing a wingtip or zone AF accidentally grabbing a wingtip because I'm in control of where that is. However, if I can't keep a single AF point on that area. Then I start looking at larger different capability and different capabilities within these AF options, AF mode options, AF area options. So if I can't keep a single point on there, but I can almost keep a single point on there for Nikon, for instance, I'll maybe look at something like dynamic nine. It's a slightly larger AF area. It's kind of like single point AF with a safety net, right? So I'll look at that. And then if that's not working, maybe I try, I go the next level, I go up to group and you know, so on and so forth. And I just, I kind of keep getting larger, I keep going to larger and larger AF areas until I can successfully, you know, get the bird in focus, basically, keep it on the bird. And for the most part, with with a little bit of practice, you don't really need to go, you know, anything, you know, too huge. But uh, yeah, that's my general methodology there. The, yeah, the harder it is to keep that autofocus area on the bird, the bigger I want that autofocus area to to be. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the way I operate. But I always try to use the smallest AF area that I can. Uh, that I can successfully keep yeah, on the bird. that makes total sense. And I think over experience, you'll come out and you'll say, oh, today we're, uh, there's some eagles in the tree. So you know, okay, this is going to be a little bit more slower moving when it hops off that branch. Mm-hmm. You'll have the ability right, to right, exactly. keep a single foot. But if, if you're doing something smaller, like you say, the metal arcs, that would be, you know, a, a much tougher type of deal. Right, right. With with the metal arcs, uh, for, for the metal arcs with mirrorless, I was using the actual tracking mode. Uh, the mirrorless cameras kind of throw it off there with their real time tracking because what I found with mirrorless cameras is if if you have a perched bird, it's really great to use that real time tracking. Just get on the bird, wait till it flies. Once it takes off, just let the tracking do the work. It works that that works really really well. So then the kind of the size factor goes all the way out. But I also find with mirrorless. I like a little bit larger area on the Nikon Zs. I like the wide, smaller, the wide, large area uh, for birds that are, that are already flying. And for Sony, I'm using zone Canon. I'm using, uh, I don't use, I haven't shot a ton of Canon, but yeah, I I'd favor, uh, like something like zone on Canon as well. If the bird is already in the air, I like to grab on with that. Cause I've noticed the tracking areas can take just a split second longer sometimes to lock on than sure. some of the more traditional areas. So for a bird that's perched, and you're waiting for it to take off. I, I I'll get I'll use that lot, real-time tracking on mirrorless all the time. For a bird that's already in flight, then I'll probably use something like uh, like zone, or one of the wide areas on Nikon. So for mirrorless, yeah. That makes sense. So speaking of focus, so you have a nice section on uh, back button autofocus, which mm-hmm. I I actually adopted just a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, and I learned how to do it. I went on the internet and I learned how to do it by 
by stumbling across one of your videos that steps <laughs> on YouTube that steps you through how to set up for back button focusing. Now, as you know, I'm a commercial photographer all my life, right? So when you mm -hmm. you're used to having shoot, I I could just use the manual on the focus. I don't even necessarily need the autofocus. But when you when you shoot right. wildlife. You know that's a whole whole different ball game, right? It goes out the window, yeah. So it took me a little while to get used to it, but but now I can't live without it. And, I, and I'm an evangelist. I'm trying to tell. I go out shooting with with buddies. It's like, look, you got <laughs> you got to do this, right? <laughs> so so in your book, you step people through how how to set up for back button focusing. So uh, take right. us through why a photographer should be using back button focus autofocus. Well, the first thing I want to say about that is that. There's not really any functional difference as far as your autofocus system is concerned between using back and front button focus. Some people think it performs better in back button versus front button, you know, shutter release focus, but that's not true. It's exactly the same autofocus system. It's an ergonomic advantage. And I also tell people if, you know, in that book, or if you're just doing action work in general, I tell people it actually doesn't matter what your autofocus, if you use back button or front button focus, it makes no difference at all because your the big advantage with back button focus is that you don't have to switch between AFS and AFC. But if you're just going to be an AFC all the time right. doing action, it doesn't matter. But since most of us don't right. do that, we switch back and forth. Maybe you have a bird that's sitting on a perch somewhere, and you tend to, you, know, you you want to take some pictures. You're focused recomposing, especially with a DSLR, because a lot of times the where you the composition puts the eye outside of the AF field itself. So, you know, you want to focus on the eye, so you focus, you recompose. Normally, the way we have to do that is we have to use, with, you know, front button focus, we have to go to AFS, we focus on the eye, we hold our button halfway down, we recompose and we shoot. But if the bird takes off, AFS can't track. Now, the opposite thing happens if we say, well, what if I used AFC for that? Well, then you can't get the composition you want because as soon as you go off the bird's eye, the camera will refocus on whatever is under your currently selected AF point. So you have to use both of them normally if you're using shutter release focus. And that's where the advantage of back button focus comes in. You can put it on AFC and leave it. So what I like about it is if I have a bird that's on a perch and, again, we'll hypothetically say the eye is outside the AF field, which for some reason it often is when I'm trying to do these kind of shots. So I take a picture, you know, I, I focus on the eye and then I release my back button in AFC mode. And then I just take the, then I recompose and I shoot. The camera didn't change the focus distance. So the eye is going to be nice and sharp. But if the bird suddenly decides to take flight, I just smash down that AF on button and I'm instantly focusing again. And again, the camera was never was never out of AFC mode. It was always in AFC mode. So it's tracking the bird. So you get the best of both worlds on just one button and without having to switch back and forth because it's just so time consuming. You miss so many shots switching back and forth between AFS and AFC right. or you're compromising shots. You're like, well, I'm just going to use AFC and I'll just zoom out some more and I'll crop later. But you're, you're, you're compromising quality when you're doing that. You know, yeah. if, you, if you're just trying to use AFC and just say, well, I'll just focus right on the eye and just, you know, and, and that'll be fine. I'll just, you have to crop out a little bit so I don't cut off the tail or whatever, you know, and it's just, it's not a good way to go. Where back button focus gives you the best of both worlds and, uh, and it's still what I use even on the mirrorless cameras is back button focus. So I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm still, I, I'm still an advocate. I think on mirrorless, it's not quite as critical since you have autofocus all over the frame. The need to focus and recompose doesn't kind of come into play quite as much, but there's some ergonomic advantages to it because, uh, for example, you can have a couple of buttons set for different things on the back of your camera. On my A1, I have my AF on button set just to whatever 
mode I happened to select at the time, but I have my AE lock button set to wide autofocus. So it uses the whole screen if I need it. So I can just slide my thumb back and forth to use whatever I need. So that, you know, that right. gives me a nice advantage right there. So I, I yeah, I, I've, I've kind of stuck with back button focus, even with, uh, even with mirrorless. So it, it works out really well. Well, I, I'm, I'm a super big fan. I, I was switching between the two doing continuous from time to time. And, and what would happen occasionally is I left it on continuous thinking it was, it was single point, and then I would uh, compose and move the move it slightly off, and then all of a sudden, my picture's soft because it of course right, grabs right. something in the background. So, all right, right, going right. to that has really to me it's it's a no brainer for me, and I use it in not only in my wildlife photography but in all of my photography now. Even doing a portrait, I'll just. You know, oh, yeah. press it on the eye, recompose, and as long as they're not moving around, it's great. Yeah, it, it works great. I, you know, it's funny. I had uh, when I first put that video out, somebody said, "Well, you don't you don't need that for landscapes." I'm like, "Are you kidding me? I love it for landscapes." Because, it, you know, when you're using front button, I, for years I shot landscapes. Before I started using back button focus, I was using uh, uh, I would shoot a landscape, and I was using you know AFS or whatever. But you'd focus on something in the scene. You'd recompose and then you'd go to shoot and then the camera refocuses because you press the button again. It's like, wait a minute. Right. Or you have to remember to press AE lock and you forget. And then you have to start the whole process over. It's like, well, with back button, I just leave it in AFC, focus on what I want. Yep. And then I don't touch focus anymore. You know, I don't have to shut the autofocus right. feature off on the lens. I don't have to uh, do any. You know, I don't have to worry about locking focus in. I just don't focus. <laughs> So yeah, I think it works. I think it works really well. I, 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 I as you say, we're. I think we're both definitely fans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hey, so also there's a, a comprehensive section on f stops and shutter speeds. Obviously, there's a lot about exposure oh, yeah, in this book. Sure. Shooting birds in flight requires some special consideration to shutter speed. And oh, for sure. I know you offer this handy guide in the book that uh, you can use as a baseline for shutter speeds of birds based on the size of them. And, and it's a pretty cool guide that I think the readers are going to like to use and go back to when they're, when they're mm -hmm. out shooting. They can use it as a guide. But tell us a little bit about how shutter speed should differ a little bit from a bird flying by, like horizontally across the frame, or mm -hmm. a bird flying straight at us. So... Here's the here's the thing with birds in flight and shutter speed. We, I, I want to put this out there first because you have to kind of have this step before we get to the next step. But the shutter speed you're using is not about the bird. It's about your ability to keep that bird in the same place in the viewfinder. It's We go back to maybe a guy who is super skilled and he's shooting songbirds in flight, right? If he can, if he can somehow, well, if he can keep a single point on it, that, that that superhero, if he can keep a single point on a songbird, he can probably keep it in the same place in the viewfinder as it's zipping by. So he can probably shoot it at, you know, two fifty or five hundredth of a second and get a sharp photo because the bird was in the same place in the viewfinder. Now mortals can't do that. You know, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, us mere mortals, we have to, you know, we need to have shutter speed kind of help us out with that. So. You know, the the harder it is to keep the bird in position in the frame, the faster your shutter speed should be. And that's why in the book I, I have those guidelines in there for different size birds and recommended shutter speeds. Because generally speaking, the smaller the bird is, the harder it is for the average person to keep it in the, you know, in the, in the same place in the viewfinder. And the larger the bird is, the slower they fly, the easier it is to keep that bird in the same place in the viewfinder. So you can get away with slower shutter speeds with larger birds. And you generally need faster shutter speeds with smaller ones to help make up for your deficiency as a photographer, 
because you're not able to keep it in the exact same spot in the viewfinder as it's zipping by. So, you know, that's the first thing to kind of realize. Now, going as far as birds that are coming towards the camera versus birds that are flying like side to side. Now, if you have a bird that's going side to side, because you're panning along with the bird and keeping it in the same place in the viewfinder, you can maybe have a bird that's going 25 mile an hour and you can pan along with him. And, you know, I think like I'm just someone with kind of an average skill set that's maybe been doing birds in flight for a little bit, probably could get away with maybe a 1600th of a second and get some nice sharp photos. And, you know, if somebody is more experienced, they can probably get by it 500, even a thousandth of a second, somewhere in there and still get sharp photos of that bird flying by because they're able to keep it in the same place in the viewfinder. But the problem is if the bird's coming straight at the lens at 25 miles an hour, it's covering 36.6 feet every second. Yeah, that's about 440 inches per second. So at a 500th of a second, you're getting just under an inch of movement, right? As the bird's coming towards the camera. And you can't do anything about that. You're panning. You're not panning anymore. You're relying on shutter speed to stop the bird. So there's nothing that you can do on your end to prevent these physics from, from happening. So what you need to do is then you have to start thinking about, well... What if I crank up the shutter speed? Well, if you go something like 1600th to 2000th, be around, I think, about a quarter of an inch worth of movement. So that's still, I think, too much for a bird coming at the camera. You're definitely going to see that blur, right? So you really, realistically, if it's coming at the camera at 25 mile an hour, you probably need between 3200 and 4000th of a second. And that's probably going to be, you know, around a 16th of an inch or so, if you're at the higher end of that, maybe 4,000, maybe even 5,000th right. of a second. So, you know, at that point, then you're, you're maybe not going to notice that much blur. But that's the problem. When the bird's coming straight at the camera, it's really, really difficult because you're not helping anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's nothing you yeah. can do to yeah. help keep that bird in the same size and position in the frame. It's all up to the shutter speed. So then you have to rely on that oh. shutter speed a lot more. The feet per second that a bird's flying, that's the kind of detail that's in this book. You're, <laughs> you've you've got so much great detail, and you break it down so people can understand it. To me, I think that's just fantastic. In fact, you have a section that's on uh, how a light meter works, right? Now, most photographers know, but there are some cases where people don't know what's, how a light meter works. But since a light meter can be fooled based on what it sees in the viewfinder, spot metering mm-hmm. might be the way to go. So why not? Would you not always use spot metering for bird and flight photography? I always caution people against spot metering for bird and flight because it's too variable. One of the problems, the biggest problem I find with spot metering is when people first learn about it, they're like, oh my gosh, this is like photographic gold, right? Up to that point, they're like, you know, you have to, the, the camera's looking at the scene and whether it's center weighted or evaluative metering or segmented or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it's looking at the scene and it's taking all this stuff and you have to look at everything. And then you say, well, spot metering. It's only looking at a really tiny spot. So instantly in, in their minds, people say, oh, so all I have to do is put the spot meter where I want it and I'll have a perfectly exposed photograph, right? Just put it on my animal. I want my animal perfectly exposed and I'll have a perfectly exposed photograph. But unfortunately, that's not how spot metering works. There's a lot of problems with that. The thing is, what spot metering actually does, you put it on your subject or whatever you want it in the, in the frame and it makes that area middle tone. And there's a big difference between making an area middle tone and making it properly exposed. Now, if your bird happens to be middle tone, then, you know, you're golden. That's great. But, you know, I, just to give you an example, I was just processing a photograph of an African darter the other day. And when they fly, especially at takeoff, they bring their wings all the way forward. Their wings are black. 
Their bodies are brown. Their bodies are nice and middle tone. I mean, you could spot meter off of that really well. But as soon as they bring their wings forward and that spot meter sees that black wing, guess what's going to happen? It's going to blow the exposure. It's going to overexpose it. So, you know, and that's part of the problem with using a spot meter is they're too variable. Or, and the other problem is that people don't realize that spot meters are larger usually than like a single AF point. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking a single AF point and a spot meter are the exact same size because they're linked together in most cameras. But the problem is that's not really the case. A lot of times the spot meter's, you know, noticeably larger than your single AF area. So what happens is people say, well, if I stay on the head and neck of this bird as it's flying by, it'll be fine. Well, it depends. You know, is the, is the bird a white bird maybe? Well, if it is, then your spot metering white, it's going to make it gray. And even if it's a middle tone bird, it's going to see around it. And if the bird's up against a sky or something like that, especially like a white sky, a cloudy sky, it's going to definitely underexpose that because it's going to see all that white. And it's going to want to bring it down to middle tone. It's going to want to make it middle tone gray. So spot meters are really, really tr tricky. Where I use a spot meter in the field for bird and flight photography is actually to set a manual exposure. I don't shoot manual, full manual all that often for my regular wildlife work, most of the time I'm using manual with auto ISOs. So the camera's floating the ISO for a proper exposure. It works really well for me for most wildlife shots. Sometimes I still switch to manual. But for bird and flight, probably, I don't know, 40 to 50% of the time, I'm switching to full manual mode just because it's easier than to, you know, because the bird's going across different environments and different light, you know, or with different backgrounds, and you don't want the meter to be fooled. So uh, that's where I like to break out the spot meter. It's like, okay, if there's something middle tone gray or middle tone just in general that I can meter off of, I'll spot meter off of that, get a proper exposure, you know, in the same light as the bird, of course, or where I the same light that I anticipate the bird's going to be in. And then I'll set my manual exposure using my spot meter. Some stuff like that, I'm, you know, absolutely fine with using the spot meter for. But I, I'm very hesitant to use it in a flight situation just because, you know, if it sees around the subject or, you know, another thing that happens is if you're using a larger AF area, which most of us are for our bird and flight photography, maybe the spot meter is not on the bird anymore at all. And it's completely against the sky, making everything gray, or it's completely against a dark background, blowing everything out. So yeah, don't use spot meters with birds in flight. <laughs> At least I wouldn't. I'm sure there's someone listening to this going, I use it all the time and it's fine. You know, but they're shooting middle tone birds on middle tone backgrounds. So <laughs> exactly. So in, in one part of your book, you have several photo examples that, that show what you were thinking when it came to the exposure on a given shot. I thought that was a really yeah. cool thing. So light birds on dark backgrounds, et cetera. Uh, mm -hmm. What's interesting that all these scenarios come up when somebody's out shooting birds in flight photography, right? The reader's mm -hmm. going to like using that as a guideline when they're shooting because they can go back to that and find those images and say, oh, look, this is what Steve did in this scenario because, you know, a, right. a lot of them, are, you don't always have that common scenario. These are things that will, that you're going to come across, but if you're not ready for them, you know, and I think, right, that, I think yeah, I think the pictures in the book from that section really help do that. So, but I do have a question for you. What's yeah. what's the exposure situation that would be your biggest nightmare? Now, you do this all the time. So, what would be your biggest nightmare? Oh, let's see. My biggest nightmare is, I think it's probably the last example in that section you were talking about in the book. The, I think my, my, my biggest nightmare is when I'm faced with a situation where I have mixed tonalities in the background, which can influence the meter, as well as the bird flying through, like, shadow and sunlit areas to me that's that, that, that's kind of the nightmare scenario because normally if you have 
mixed tonalities in the background, but the bird is in steady light. Like it's not going, it's like just in sunlight, we'll say. But the background's mixed. So if the bird flies against the dark background, it's going to want to overexpose. If it flies against the light background, the camera wants to underexpose. The solution is very simple. I go to manual mode, meter for the light that the bird's in, and then the meter ignores the background and I get perfect exposures no matter what the bird's against. And, and, and again, that's all explained in the, in the book, as you know. Uh, the, the, yeah. the, the other side of it is if I'm in a situation where I have a relatively neutral background and it's not, very, it's not variable, it's pretty much one tonality, but the bird is flying in and out of shadows, well, that's where auto exposure works real well. It can adjust the exposure instantly on the fly as the bird goes from shadow to sunlight. The nightmare is when you get into a situation where you have mixed tonalities and the birds flying in and out of shadow because then you can't use auto exposure and you can't use manual exposure real well either because you know it something's got to give right so in that scenario that's that, that that's the nightmare and when i run across that my the normal thing that i try to do is just pick an area that i think looks good and just shoot it as the bird goes through that a lot of times in manual mode and yeah. just kind of in full manual mode not manual with auto iso and just kind of get those images in that section, you know, find a nice background, find something that looks good, and then shoot the bird as it goes through that section. However, if I'm trying to get both or both are equally good, sometimes, especially if it's a relatively you know bright day and I can use lower ISOs, what I'll do is I will expose a little bit on the hot side for when the bird's in the sunlight or in the brighter areas, right? Not to the point of clipping, but just a little bit before. So I can bring that down later on in Lightroom and, and make the exposure right. But what that does is, since most cameras are ISO invariant to some degree, I can, when the bird's in the shadow, sure, it's going to be underexposed in the field. But if I use a nice low ISO, like maybe ISO you know, 400 or something, and I need to bring it up two stops in Lightroom, it's going to look like I shot it in the field at ISO 1600. So that's not too bad. That's, you know, you're still, you're still going to have a little more noise, but at least you're able to you know, get kind of the best of both worlds. So that's kind of a little yep. tricky, a little tricky way to get around that particular like scenario. That. Yeah. I, I've used that successfully, but like I say, most of the time it's, that's most of the time there's going to be an area that's better than one area is going to be better than the other. The sunlit area is going to be better. The bird's going to look better against, you know, one background or another, especially if there, you know, there's a bunch of activity flying around. So yeah, that's uh, most of the time it doesn't, I don't have to resort to that, but it is a technique you can use. Right. Well, one other thing too that's really good about shooting manual is when you when you pick that exposure and you're photographing the bird going by, when you come into Lightroom, mm -hmm. if you see, oh, I've I've underexposed all of this. Well, you have maybe 30 frames that you want to bring up, so you can sync them and and bring up right, all right. those frames exactly the same, and so your your <laughs> processing time is faster in Lightroom afterwards, right? Right. Right, absolutely been there, done that. <laughs> For sure. For sure. So, so uh you also have a lengthy section on how to compose bird and flight photography. And one of the things yeah. that, uh, that I think photographers overlook a lot is in, in this genre, especially is the background. Oh yeah, for sure. What should a photographer take, uh, when it, uh, take into consideration when they're looking at the background, what, what do they need to be looking for? Yeah, anybody who knows me knows what my answer is going to be here. Uh, I, I say, keep the sky out of the background as much as possible for the most part. I was going to say, I, I did get that from the book. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big blue sky fan. And the reason for that is I don't care if there's some blue sky in it, 
but just birds against the blue sky, they're kind of monotonous in a portfolio. I've looked at people's Flickr pages and Instagrams where they had birds in flight, but they were all against the blue sky. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's just, it's the exact same shot, just with a different species in it over and over. So there, you know, there's no information in there about where the subject lives or what it's doing or anything like that. So for me, I'm always looking for backgrounds that kind of add to the story of the shot. And it can be just a smooth, creamy, out of focus background, but you can see that it's, you know, vegetative if it's green and things like that. Or if it's brown and it's like a bird and you see some sand in the foreground, you kind of can, you know, you know, you'll think in your head, oh, that's, you know, more beach behind it. You know, it gives a, I like backgrounds that give an indication of habitat and kind of of where the bird lives and things like that. And it can kind of give more clues about the environment that it, uh, that it lives in. And uh, you have to be careful, though, because when you start dealing with more terrestrial backgrounds like that, you have to make sure that things aren't too busy. So that gets a little bit tricky, too. You know, if the bird's really close to the background, all of a sudden this goes from, you know, good advice to very bad advice because then the bird gets lost in all the, you know, busyness of the background. You don't want that either. So my ideal background is kind of something, you know, again, terrestrial. We have some vegetation from trees or whatever. And it's just far enough back. You can kind of see what's going on. But... It's not so close that it's, you know, that that it's disruptive to the shot. It's not uh, going to add too much. It's not going to look busy in the background. It's just going to give you kind of a, a subtle impression of what's behind the bird. I think those are, I think those to me are, are kind of the best backgrounds. Yeah, I would agree. You know, uh, there's, what's really neat about the book is it's, it's broken up into sections and you have an, uh, yet another section that's on predictable flight patterns. So, I'm mm-hmm. a really big fan of people learning about the animal they're going to go photograph, right? Oh, absolutely. In this case, you break this down. It really goes in depth. And there's a there's a section in there about the wind and how that's, that can be your friend. And that section alone is worth the price of the book. I mean, there were things in there <laughs> that I didn't know, and I thought, wow, that is, that's awesome. <laughs> that's cool. But in the predictable flight pattern section, there's a subsection on feeding areas. So one of the examples mm-hmm. of understanding feeding areas, they're the macaws of Costa Rica. So what's an example yeah. of their feeding pattern? Yeah, and I just I want to emphasize that this is one of many. And uh, I'm going to start before I get into that just a little bit. Um, I wanted to spell a quick little myth that a lot of people think. If you've never done bird and flight photography, a lot of people believe that bird and flight photography is done by grabbing your camera and then you go hiking. And then a bird flies in front of you and you skillfully just bring the camera up to your eye and boom, you got a you know a wall hanger just like that. And that's absolutely not how it works. Most bird and flight photographers seek out places where they can find birds flying around consistently so that they're not just, you know, willy nilly walking through the woods, hoping to find something. You know, we're going to look for places like feeding areas, uh, breeding areas, watering holes, anything, anything that's going to attract birds and where birds are going to be coming and going congregation areas, even just, you know, really good habitat where you just see a lot of birds. And so that's, and feeding areas are one of those things that really, really uh, is probably like uh, probably the best of the bunch of that group. And uh, just again, the, the macaws are a great example, but they are certainly not, you know, they, they're certainly not isolated. You know, there's you know, all sorts of different examples, but for the macaws, one of the things that are great, and they're a good example of, you know, how, how birds, how you can photograph birds when they're feeding, is you'll find a group of them and they'll congregate on a nearby tree to one of these palm fruit trees that are down there. 
and they'll go over to these palm fruit trees one or two at a time. Usually the couples, they're, uh, they, they mate for life. And usually the couples will go over there together. And then you can watch them. And they'll be working these little palm fruits. And they'll be kind of, you know, turning their head. And they're really working them over. They'll pluck them off. And once they get one off, then they'll fly off that tree and go back to the, uh, the kind of the staging tree, if you will. And then another macaw couple will come over and they'll do the same thing. They'll go back and forth like that. And what's great about that is when stuff like that happens, you can put yourself, you have a very predictable flight pattern. You know exactly where they're coming from, where they're going to go, what the path is going to be roughly, and you can position yourself for good backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. And it really works well. It's a huge advantage for anyone trying to do bird and flight photography when you can find a predictable feeding pattern like that. Because, you know, again, using the macaws for an example, you know, when I see a macaw on that palm fruit and I see him pop that thing off, I know that I have just a few seconds and he's going to fly. There's no question about it. You know, I can focus on him, I can watch him, and I know exactly what he's going to do. And, you know, and it's it's so predictable. It's very, very easy. And I, and I, and I love that I can position myself to get the best possible shot. You know, and this is the kind of stuff that we're looking for when we're out there shooting uh, birds in flight. We're looking for stuff where we have repeatable patterns. Another really good repeatable pattern I see sometimes in Florida, one of my favorites, is these little snowy egrets. If they find a low tidal pool, they'll hover above it and kind of pluck fish out on the wing. And they'll go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth over these little areas, a lot of times repeating the same pattern over and over. And you can just, you know, sit there for hours just getting flight shots of them doing this. And sometimes you get, I have a shot in the book of a, one that's got a fish right in midair, right between his uh, his open oh, bill. And spectacular. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite favorite that was a, yeah. awesome. I, I, I probably shot 400, 500 pictures that morning to get that shot just. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for the, but, uh, for the yeah, listeners, yeah, yeah, yeah. for listeners who haven't seen that shot, the this bird is is the head is going backwards. So the bird's flying forward, and the head is backwards underneath the bird and picking out a fish. I mean, oh, the skimmer, yeah, yeah, very, yep. very spectacular. Yeah, no, they're they're a lot of fun, and a lot of times you get these birds, and and again, if you find those repeating patterns, that's just that that's really the key. It makes a huge difference in feeding areas or. Are awesome for that for sure for sure. Right. Hey, so but speaking of Costa Rica, you have workshops down there, right? So tell tell the listeners tell the listeners about how you uh, how they can take part in your workshops and what they can expect. Uh, yeah, our workshops right now. I think we're pretty much booked up for next year. We're we're, we're kicking around whether or not we're going to do an extra one down there or not. But uh, right now we're pretty much booked up for 2022. We do fill up fast. So I tell anyone who wants to get either Costa Rica or Africa workshops, either one of them. To make sure you're on my free email newsletter at my site, backcountrygallery.com, it's up in the upper left-hand corner. There's a sign-up there. Just make sure you sign up for that. Our workshops do fill, uh, I'm sorry, they, they do fill up really fast. They sell out really fast. The last time we opened up a workshop, we sold 60 spots in 36 hours for six different weeks. So it goes, they, they go fast. They go fast. Even our Africa ones, which are more expensive, I think we sold those out in about a week. So if you're, yeah, definitely, if you're interested in the workshops, you can stop by the site. There's a workshops link there that'll tell you about the workshops that we're doing. But uh, yeah, definitely get on the newsletter. And if you see it come in, definitely open it up because uh, yeah. they, they, they go fast if you're interested. Wow, that's, that's, that's good to know. 
So also in the book, you have a, a whole section on shooting techniques, obviously. And in this section, oh, you, sure. you have a subheading on tracking techniques, which is, I think, super mm -hmm. important. There, there's a part where oh, you talk about, about shooting handheld and with a tripod. Mm -hmm. So give the listeners some tips and for shooting handheld and for working on a tripod. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure. So for handheld, it's actually pretty straightforward. And one of the things I'm going to start with is to encourage you to watch one of my videos called How to Find Your Subject with a Long Lens. Just Google How to Find Your Subject with a Long Lens. My video will come right up because that's one of the most critical parts of it is being able to find that bird when it's on the wing and get on that bird right away because you can't start tracking it unless you have it in the viewfinder. And that video, it's I could try to explain it here on the podcast, but it's so much easier just to watch the video demonstration. So I thought I'd just throw that in there. But as far as... Yeah, I just but watched that yesterday, actual... and it's super easy to follow. Okay, yeah, yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, but otherwise, uh, the, the tracking is actually pretty straightforward. You want to be comfortable, of course. Uh, you're using a faster shutter speed, so you want to have a comfortable grip. You don't need to, you know, muscle the camera or anything like that. Shoulder Feet about shoulder width apart. And the key is really just to try to pivot at your waist and not try to, you know, wiggle all over the place. A lot of times I see people turning everything but their waist when they're trying to follow a bird. And, you know, you just kind of shoulder width apart as the bird comes in. You have your hands and, you know, one hand under the, under the lens, the other on the grip, of course. You know, just very comfortable and just kind of pivot at your waist as the bird's coming past. And, you know, for the most part, that's, uh, you, you know, it, it's just practice at that point to try to keep the bird in the same place in the viewfinder. And there's a lot of things you can do with that. A lot of times I tell people, just focus on a particular part of the bird and try to keep your autofocus point right on that as you're pivoting, you know. Uh, another good piece of tracking advice is to just practice tracking without shooting. Especially, you know, for most cameras, we're still dealing with viewfinder blackout, right? So... What I tell people to do, one of the best ways to learn tracking is to go to a local beach or something or someplace where birds are active and just track birds. Don't shoot birds. Just track them. Just look at them in the viewfinder. Focus on them, but don't take any pictures. Just follow them along. It's a really good technique for kind of learning how they move and how you need to move and turn just so that you can kind of get that feel for it. Because it seems like kind of a waste of time to go spend an afternoon or even a couple hours, you know, just tracking birds. But honestly, it pays real, it pays real dividends. It really does. Because once you're comfortable doing that, it makes it much easier to shoot and track at the same time. Because when that viewfinder starts blacking out, it sometimes gets a little bit hard to, you know, keep that bird in the same spot. It's, it, you know, the blackout can be distracting. And by practicing tracking like that, it makes a big difference. I was, I was also going to say that you could, uh, if a person went out in the middle of the day when the light's terrible and they're practicing their tracking, you know, they're not going to be taking pictures anyway. So Right, exactly. That's a great time to do it. Yeah, when you get up at the crack of dawn, you don't want to be, have to learn how to do that. You want to be shooting. So Right, exactly. Yeah, just, you know, wait till the lights, you know, go out, you know, maybe for an evening shoot, but get there a couple hours early and just do some practicing. And it, it makes such a big difference. And, you know, th th then, of course, you have tripods and tracking. And... That doesn't work quite the same because you can't really pivot and make the camera move. <laughs> if you pivot at your waist, it does not move the camera on the tripod. Right. 
So you have to kind of swivel your body, you know, kind of swing your body back and forth. And I have two basic setups for tripods. The one is kind of the classic wildlife photographer shooting technique. And you have one leg on either side, and then you have the other, the, the, the middle legs going straight forward in front of you. That's the one I usually use. And that gives you a pretty good flexibility as far as turning left and right. Most of the time, 90% of the time, that's what I use. But if I'm in a situation where I'm having some seriously wide swings or the birds are coming from a lot of different directions, I'll actually maybe reverse that tripod position so that I have one leg kind of stra- that I'm straddling one leg and the other two legs are more in front and kind of out of my way. And then I'll just kind of feel that leg between my legs and I'll just kind of move back and forth so I know where, you know, I don't trip over the tripod, but it gives me more range to swing back and forth and jump around. So, but otherwise, yeah, you know, the, you know as far as the tripod shooting itself, you want a loose gimbal head. You want, or whatever kind of ball, or whatever kind of tripod head you're using, you want all the controls loose, the lens collar loose, and you want to be able to freely move everything, you know, all, all the time. Because I've, I've seen, and it's a little bit tragic and a little bit funny at the same time, but I've seen people try to lock their tripod heads down doing bird and flight. And and as I say in the book, the disaster is just as just exactly what you think it is and, and funnier than you think it is too. But uh, it, it, once you're like, no, you got to have everything loose. Then, then then things start to click for them a little bit more. But uh, I was going to say, what you're saying is, is that when a bird's flying by, it, it doesn't stay at the exact same level the whole time? No, it does not. As it turns out, it does not stay at the same level. Yeah, I know, right? What's wrong with these birds? And, then, and that's the problem. People will lock things in and it's like, don't lock anything. Everything's Tripods aren't for stability with bird and flight photography. Tripods are to relieve fatigue they're to keep you from your arms from getting tired you know it's they're, they're not there to uh, to provide stability so don't lock them down just make sure everything's free and easy and that's one of the reasons i love using a gimbal i could balance the gimbal so that everything is you know completely balanced i can move everything with my pinky whatever direction i point the camera if it's balanced it'll stay in that direction if i point the lens upward and let go of it it won't flop around and that's one of the reasons i use the gimbal heads because they're just, like I say, they're weightless, really, on a tripod. Yep. And as I say, that's why I like using the tripod. So you also have a section on how some photographers are not getting bird in flight pictures that are sharp. So can right. you go over some of the reasons that uh, bird in flight images appear soft? Yeah, uh, the number one reason that I found is that they haven't purchased this book yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I couldn't resist. But uh, no, they're, they're, I think there's I think there's more than this listed there. But there's three big reasons that I see over and over and over again. And the first one is just shutter speed. So many times people think 250th of a second is a fast speed. And, you know, you get a new bird and flight photographer, even if they're shooting a thousandth of a second, which, again, a lot of people think is really fast. They think, oh, you know, I'm on the thousandth of a second. How could my, you know, songbird be blurry? It's like, how could it not? You've never done this before. You're terrible at it. And, uh, you know, your, uh, your tracking is very poor. And, you know, you really need that shutter speed to be faster than that. And, you know, when you're first starting off, people always seem to underestimate how fast they need to be with their shutter speed. And that's really the number one thing that I see as far as sharpness problems is people not having enough shutter speed. I tell people my, I have a whole, as you say, I have a whole table of shutter speeds in there and suggestions, a little table in there. But uh, I think my, my favorite shutter speed for just general bird and flight photography is one thirty two hundredth of a second. And I can't tell you the number of people that I've given that piece of advice to that have come back and said, oh my gosh, Steve, all of a sudden my photos are sharp. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I, 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 you know, because I was shooting a thousand, even sixteen hundred. I thought it was enough, but then I went and I said, okay, I said, just try it for me. Just go out one afternoon and, or morning or whatever, 
just try it. And I get an email a few days later, and it's always the same thing. I can't believe, oh my gosh, that was so that that made all the difference in the world. It's like, yeah, you know. And as your technique improves, you can use slower and slower shutter speeds. But we were all terrible when we first started off, so don't feel bad about it. It's like you just have to, you know, you know, you know, use more shutter speed than you think. And as you get better, you'll be able to knock that shutter speed down. You know, I have shots in that book. Um, I think regular flight shots. I think the slowest might be that Pelican I have in there, and I think that's four hundredth of a second. You know, so, you know, it, it, and that's, and that was a few years back, you know, my skill set's improved since then, but, you know, for the most part, uh, you just have to, you know, just make sure you have enough shutter speed. Uh, the next one would be heat haze and, or heat distortion or whatever you want to call it. And that's basically those heat waves we see on hot, sunny days. And they are a lot more detrimental than people believe or realize. And they're there a lot more often than you realize too. And a lot of times you don't really notice them when you're just looking over the horizon because I, I think we kind of filter them out a little bit too but sure. you know part of the problem is you're using a telephoto lens and that's going to magnify and increase the effect and the problem is is that when you're dealing with any kind of open area where the sun's warming it up especially in the morning or you know even i guess almost any time of day but especially in the morning when you have cool ground and then the sun's warming it up you're going to have that warm air coming up. It's mixing with the cooler air. It's causing uh, refraction. And that's another big, big problem with any kind of telephoto lens photography, not just bird and flight, but any of it. And that's probably an easy number two as far as problems I see. And you can recognize it pretty fast. It looks kind of like nothing sharp in the frame. It's like, well, you know... You know, a lot of times if something's just out of focus, something will be sharp. Maybe the bird's eye is out of focus, but the wing's sharper. Maybe the bird's out of focus, but the tree behind him is nice and sharp. There's something sharp in the frame. But with heat distortion and heat haze, nothing is sharp. It just kind of looks kind of like someone smeared Vaseline on the on the front of the lens a little bit. And I do have a video on that one, too, if, if anyone wants to take a look at that. It goes over that and shows you lots of examples. It's it's so much easier to show you than it is to tell you. But if you saw the, if you saw some of the examples, as soon as you see the examples, you're like, oh, my gosh, I know what that is. <laughs> so, um, And I think the other biggest problem or the other big problem with sharpness is sometimes the subject is just too far away. So many times people crop or expect to crop way, way, way too much. And you have a subject that's just, you know, a half mile away and you're trying to get, you know, this bird in flight and it's this really tight. It's taking up four pixels. It's like you're not going to get any detail there. In addition, the farther something is away, even if you don't have heat haze problems, you still you have, you know, humidity, you have particulates in the air. Yeah, it just pollution. You know, it's just not going to be as sharp when, when something sometimes stuff is just too far away. So, yeah, I think that's number three there. But those are the, I think those are the big three. And obviously yeah. there's more in the this big book. Three problems and, people and, have. Oh, I cannot I cannot recommend this book enough, especially if somebody's saying, I think I want to do this. I want to I want to try this new new for them to go out. And it's a challenge. It's a real challenge to, to start yeah. doing bird and flight photography. But this book really makes it easy. But there's one thing that I think that uh, readers probably don't know, and that is that the book is very entertaining. So not only are you getting tons of information, there's a lot of there's a lot of humor in it. You know, there were times where I, I, I felt like I was I was reading a script from Family Guy, but <laughs> there there. But I I did write down a couple of my favorites, so I got to tell you guys this. Go for it. In in talking about locating your subjects, this is what Steve writes. Another potential mass congregation location is a water source, especially when it's so dry the trees are bribing the dogs. And I thought <laughs> that's great. And then then here, here here's another one. 
In a section talking about hand-holding versus tripods, he writes, this is where a tripod or a monopod can prove invaluable. Keeping your eye at the viewfinder is much easier when your fatigued arms aren't shaking like a chihuahua in a thunderstorm. <laughs> well, this is my favorite one. This is the best one. So he's talking about a once-in-a-lifetime shot. This is a shot that, you know, he's, he's trying to really illustrate that this is a once-in-a-lifetime shot, and this is what you're going to do. So imagine that a bald eagle comes soaring out of the woods carrying a fox in its talons, and the fox has a rabbit in its mouth, and the rabbit's playing a tiny little guitar. <laughs> oh, I thought that was great. Thanks. Thanks. I, I try. I try to put a little bit of humor in there just to kind of break it up. I've read so many oh, yeah. books that are so monotonous that you, you, they're so dry that it's. It makes it. I think it makes it difficult to read them. You know, I kind of. You know, uh, I kind of fall asleep. You know, as as I'm reading them, and I and it's like, yeah, you know, I want people to be, you know, engaged with the book. And I think sometimes when there's a little levity from you know every now and then, it kind of it kind of breaks up the uh, you know some of the uh, uh, the monotony of trying to learn something new. Um, although I do, I do have a friend that says, yeah, I, I like to read your book before I go to bed. It puts me asleep. So I don't know, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, well, thank you so much for coming on with us. So let the listeners know how they can purchase this book and how they can also purchase your other books and videos and other things you have to offer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you go to my, you can do it a couple of different ways. I, the books are only sold through my website. It's the bcgwebstore.com. That is bcg and then webstore.com, like all one word. Or you can just go to backcountrygallery.com, and there's a link there uh, along the top menu bar that that, that will go for books and videos, and you can click that, and everything's listed there as well. So it's very easy to get. And it's an instant download. This is an ebook, so it's an instant download. And, uh, yeah, pretty easy. Well, again, appreciate you coming on and giving us some great, great info. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please take a moment to tell another photographer about it. Maybe even make a post telling your followers about this podcast on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. The Nature Photography Podcast can always be searched on any of the leading podcast players. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and Amazon Music, plus many others. It is important to include the in the title, The Nature Photography Podcast. I know it's a pain, but if you have time, it would be great if you could leave a positive review in any of those platforms. It could really help keep this podcast high in the ratings. Feel free to visit my website, imagelight.com. That's I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com for photographs and links to all the things we've talked about in this podcast. Feel free to email me with comments or suggestions. My email is terry at imagelight.com. Until next time, this is your host, Terry Vanderheiden with the Nature Photography Podcast. Mm-hmm.